trying to free your mind, Neo. But I can only show you the door. You're the one that has to walk through it. Welcome to the Origins Podcast, everyone. This is your host, Paul, and this is episode 154. This week's show is entitled The Full Fat Paradox. Whole milk may keep us lean. And this is the first show from my new recording room in my new house. And it's lovely and spacious and very, very quiet compared to my old place. Anyway, on with the show. From the www.scinews.com website. Archaeologists today announced the discovery of a series of footprints left by a group of adults and children about 800,000 years ago. 800,000 year old footprints discovered in the UK. The prints were first discovered and recorded on the foreshore at Happisburg in Norfolk, England in May 2013. At first we weren't sure what we were seeing, but as we removed any remaining beach sand and sponged off the sea water, it was clear that the hollows resembled prints, perhaps human footprints, said Dr Nick Ashton of the British Museum, the lead author of a paper published in the open access journal PLOS One. Using a technique called photogrammetry, Dr Ashton and his colleagues recorded the surface as quickly as possible before the sea eroded it away. The analysis of images confirmed that the elongated hollows were indeed ancient human footprints, perhaps of five individuals. The analysis showed that the prints were from a range of adult and juvenile foot sizes, and that in some cases the heel, arch and even toes could be identified, equating to modern shoes of up to the US size 9 to 10. In some cases we could accurately measure the length and width of the footprints and estimate the height of the individuals who made them. In most populations today and in the past, foot length is approximately 15% of height explained co-author Dr Isabel de Groot of Liverpool John Moores University. We can therefore estimate that the heights varied from about 0.9 of a metre to over 1.7 metres. 
This height range suggests a mix of adults and children, with the largest print possibly being a male. Over the last 10 years, the sediments at Happersburg have revealed a series of sites with stone tools and fossil bones dating back to over 800,000 years. This latest discovery is from the same deposits. Although we knew that the sediments were old, we had to be certain that the hollows were also ancient and hadn't been created recently, said co-author Dr Simon Lewis from Queen Mary University of London. There are no known erosional processes that create that pattern. In addition, the sediments are too compacted for the hollows to have been made recently. The age of the site, 800,000 years ago, is based on its geological position beneath the glacial deposits that form the cliffs, but also the association with extinct animals. The site also preserves plant remains and pollen, together with beetles and shells, which allows a detailed reconstruction of the landscape. At this time, Britain was linked by land to continental Europe, and the site at Happersburg would have been on the banks of a wide estuary several miles from the coast. There would have been muddy freshwater pools on the floodplain with salt marsh and coast nearby. Deer, bison, mammoth, hippo and rhino graze the river valley, surrounded by more dense coniferous forest. The estuary provided a rich array of resources for the early humans with edible plant tubers, seaweed and shellfish nearby, while the grazing herds would have provided meat through hunting or scavenging. Fossil remains of our forebears are still proving elusive. The humans who made the Happersburg footprints may well have been related to the people of similar antiquity from Atapueca in Spain, assigned to the species Homo antecessor. These people were of a similar height to ourselves and were fully bipedal. They seem to have become extinct in Europe by 600,000 years ago, and were perhaps replaced by the species Homo heidelbergensis. Neanderthals followed from about 400,000 years ago, and eventually modern humans some 40,000 years ago, said co-author Professor Chris Stringer of the Natural History Museum in the UK. The importance of the Happersburg footprints is highlighted by the rarity of footprints surviving elsewhere. Only those at Laetoli in Tanzania, at about three and a half millions, and Ilaret and Kubifora in Kenya, at about one and a half million years, are more ancient. These footprints provide a very tangible link to our forebears and deep past, Dr Ashton concluded. And also from the SciNews.com website, Tarantula venom could lead to new effective painkillers. Using an innovative screening method, a team of scientists from Australia and the United States have discovered a peptide in the venom of the Peruvian green velvet tarantula that blunts activity in pain-transmitting neurons. The novel method, named toxineering, has the potential to search millions of different spider toxins for safe pain-killing drugs and therapies. 
Dr. Michael Nitterbach from our University of Medicine and his colleagues screened toxins from a variety of tarantula species to find one that blocked TRPA1, an ion channel on the surface of pain-sensing neurons that is implicated in inflammation and neuropathic pain. By generating a small library of mutated versions of the tarantula toxin, they identified Protoxin I, a 35 residue peptide from the venom of the Peruvian green velvet tarantula that blocks TRPA1 but has no effect on the activity of other channels on the surface of the neurons. The beauty of the system is we can also screen engineered toxins not found in nature and identify higher potency and more specific molecular variants that lack deleterious effects on essential nerve functions, says Dr. Nickerbark, who is the lead author of a paper published in the journal Current Biology. The likelihood is that within the vast diversity of spider toxins, we will find others that are active against other channels important for pain, he said. The team plans to ramp up efforts to test tens of thousands of new toxins for similar biological activity against pain-sensing neurons. And from the www.todayifoundout.com website, an article by Matt Blitz. One of the greatest scientists of the 20th century you've probably never heard of. There's a perception that religion and science go together about as well as mayonnaise and marshmallows. In some instances, this is perhaps true. But on a typically warm Southern California January in 1933, at the California Institute of Technology in Pasadena, religion and science proved that these two ideals didn't have to be enemies. On that day, some of the greatest science luminaries from the time, from around the world, Edwin Hubble and Albert Einstein to name two, gathered to hear a series of lectures. But it was one man and one lecture that caused Albert Einstein to declare, This is the most beautiful and satisfactory explanation of creation to which I've ever listened. It is well known that on the eve of the Third Reich's rise, Einstein left his homeland of Germany for the United States. But few know that travelling with him was Belgian Catholic priest Georges Lumetra, a man that Einstein greatly respected. Georges Lumetra was a religious man, but also a great scientist himself, a cosmologist in fact. He studied the universe and most notably its beginnings. His research, beliefs and conclusions greatly influenced the way we understand our very existence today. Born in 1894 in Charleroi, Belgium, Georges took an early interest in figuring out how things around him worked. 
he began his studies in civil engineering at the Catholic University of Leuven, the largest French-speaking university in Belgium. He took a break from his studies to serve in the Belgian army as an officer during World War I. He performed admirably, and at the end of the war he received a Belgian war cross, an award for bravery on the battlefield. He then returned to the university and earned degrees in mathematics and philosophy. Ever since Georges was a young boy, he embraced religion and understood the relation it could have with science. He emulated his former teacher, Cardinal Desiree Messier, who held progressive beliefs on philosophy and cosmology. So instead of entering a life of academia, he entered the priesthood. On September 23, 1923, Lemaitre was ordained as a priest by his spiritual teacher, Cardinal Mercier. During his spare time, now Father Lemaitre continued his scientific studies, especially on the theories of general and special relativity. Cardinal Mercier, recognising Lemaitre's talents, allowed him to go to study at the prestigious Harvard Observatory. During the same time, Lemaitre earned a PhD in physics from MIT. Lemaitre's considerable and varied studies allowed him to cross paths with other noted astronomers and cosmologists of the day, including George Hale, who was the discoverer of solar vortices and magnetic sunspots, and Vesto Slipher, galactic red shifts, and oversaw the discovery of Pluto, which had a great influence on his later findings. It was at this time that Lemaitre came up with a profound theory that still impacts our study of the universe today. In 1927, he published his article, A Homogeneous Universe of Constant Mass and Increasing Radius, Accounting for the Radial Velocity of Extragalactic Nebulae. In it, he proposed and described his theory of an expanding universe. Using Einstein's theory of relativity as a guide, Lemaitre speculated that space is constantly expanding and therefore the distance between galaxies is also increasing. Later Hubble would demonstrate the same thing and even to this day is generally given credit for coming up with the idea. Further, Lemaitre discovered what has since become known as Hubble's law a rate of expansion related to the galaxy's distance from Earth. Lemaitre also derived what is known as Hubble's constant. In both of these instances, he did this before Hubble published his work concerning these same revolutionary ideas. Hubble's real contribution in this case was to provide the observational basis for Lemaitre's mostly mathematically based theory. Unfortunately for Lemaitre, his Nobel Prize-worthy paper, though at that time the astronomers couldn't win Nobel Prizes for their work in astronomy as it wasn't yet considered part of physics, had little impact on the scientific community due to it being published in a journal hardly read outside of Belgium. But one man in particular read it, Albert Einstein. Lemaitre and Einstein met for the first time in 1927 at the famed Fifth Solvay Conference in Brussels. Impressed with Lemaitre's findings, but not swayed, he told him, Your calculations are correct, but your physics are abominable. Essentially, Einstein thought Lemaitre's math was correct, 
but what the math seemed to show was not. In 1931, wishing to make his theories more widely read, Lemaitre sent his article to Sir Arthur Eddington, a British astrophysicist and someone who wanted to make scientific theories accessible to everyone. He was the one who announced and helped explain to the English-speaking world Einstein's theory of relativity when he was still a German-based scientist. Eddington translated Lemaitre's work and had it published in the monthly notices of the Royal Astronomical Society, a peer-reviewed journal still in existence today. After publishing, it became apparent to both sceptics and Lemaitre himself that there was something missing from the theory. The universe is constantly expanding. But when and how did the expansion begin? This left Lemaitre perplexed, but like a good scientist he kept questioning. Only a few months later, using Eddington's 1931 talk about the end of the universe, entitled On the End of the World from the Standpoint of Mathematical Physics, as a guide, Lemaitre came up with another groundbreaking theory. In a May 9, 1931 letter to the Nature Journal, still published today and has been since 1869, Lemaitre wrote, If the world has begun with a single quantum, the notions of space and time would altogether fail to have any meaning at the beginning. They would only begin to have a sensible meaning when the original quantum has been divided into a sufficient number of quanta. If this suggestion is correct, the beginning of the world happened a little before the beginning of space and time. This would be coined later in a collection of essays in 1950 by Lemaitre as the primeval atom, where he would also refer to the beginning as a now without yesterday, or mistranslated and more popularly known as the day without yesterday. This was the foundation of what would become known as the Big Bang Theory, after several other scientists would add to Lemaitre's theory. Many sceptics of the time did not agree with his origin theory. They believed that Lemaitre's religious background clouded his scientific process. Essentially what Lemaitre was claiming, according to critics, was that something, somehow, had to have created the primeval atom leaving open the possibility of a greater being. In fact, Pope Pius XII proclaimed in 1952 that the Big Bang Theory affirmed the notion of a transcendental creator and therefore was in harmony with Catholic dogma. As for Lemaitre, he did not appreciate the Pope's assessment and argued vehemently with him over the issue, trying to get the Pope to stop using his work as an argument for creationism preferring that his work stand on its own or not, without allowing religious ideas to cloud people's perception of it. Ironically, given Lemaitre's math and theories were generally sound, given the state of scientific knowledge of the day, in many of these cases it was the dissenting scientists allowing their own biases to influence their perception of Lemaitre's work. Despite the conflict, Lemaitre detailed all of these theories to an awe-inspired audience in 1933 at the aforementioned conference in Pasadena, California. When he was finished and Einstein proclaimed his now famous quote, New York Times writer Duncan Aikman, who was covering the conference, 
took a picture of the two scientists together with the caption, They have a profound respect and admiration for each other. In the same article, Aikman continued, There is no conflict between religion and science. Lemaitre has been telling audiences over and over again in this country. His view is interesting and important, not because he is a Catholic priest, not because he is one of the leading mathematical physicists of our time, but because he is both. And also from the www.todayifoundout.com website, an article by Darren Hiskey. Why blueprints are blue? Making copies of architectural drawings hasn't always been the easiest thing in the world to do. For the majority of human history, the most economical solution was simply to have someone make a tracing of the original plans. In the mid-19th century, the process abruptly became much quicker and easier thanks to the famed polymath Sir John Herschel. In 1842, Herschel invented a method to easily copy drawings using potassium ferrocyanide and ammonium iron citrate. The exact method, called cyanotype, is performed as follows. First, you take a drawing of the plans done on a relatively translucent tracing paper or cloth and place it on top and attach it to paper, or sometimes linen, mylar, etc., that has been previously soaked in a mixture of the aforementioned two chemicals, then dried. Next, you expose the papers to a bright ultraviolet light source, such as the sun, for several minutes. The result is that the paper soaked in chemicals ends up turning blue as the chemicals react to the light and form a compound called blue ferric ferrocyanide, also known as Prussian blue. This wouldn't be very helpful for making a copy of a document except for the fact that where the light cannot penetrate the translucent paper, namely where the drawing marks are, the coated paper remains the original colour of the paper, usually white, effectively making a nice copy. You might see a potential problem here in that you can't expose the unblued bits to any bright light source at first, but this problem is easily solved by simply washing the chemicals off, then allowing the paper to dry. At this point, the copy is complete. Within a few decades of the discovery of this method of copying, as well as other blueprinting methods, such as the one developed by Alphonse-Louis Poitavin in 1861 using ferrogalate, the price dropped to about one-tenth the cost of having someone simply trace the original plans, helping the popularity of blueprints explode. In the mid-20th century, copying methods such as diazoprints, and then later xerographic prints, finally supplanted blueprints. Much more recently, simply sticking with digital versions of plans has become popular, with these having the advantage of being easy to modify and distribute as needed during the construction process. Despite the technological changes and the fact that these plans usually aren't on blue paper anymore, in popular vernacular the term blueprints has stuck around anyways.
from the www.wordetective.com website. Squared away. Dear Word Detective, I told my boss something was squared away and suddenly wondered where that phrase comes from and why it's a good thing for a person, in this case, thing or situation, to be squared away. I fussed around the internet and came away with three options. It means old-fashioned, as in square music. It refers to boxing or wrestling where opponents square off against each other. Or it's the dreaded nautical term, meaning the sails are at right angles to the deck of a ship in relationship to the wind direction or some such, and therefore in good order. Sadly, I want it to be the nautical definition because I just don't see how getting ready to be pounded to a pulp or twisted into a knot is a good idea. For that matter, I don't know how one sail position is better than another unless it just satisfies a sense of order. But there you go. That's those nautical phrases for you. And this is from Victoria Ayres. Indeed, as a matter of fact, since we're on the subject, I've often thought life would be much simpler if nothing floated. Absolutely nothing at all. If even a feather sank like a stone in water, I imagine ducks would hate it, and some fish would be inconvenienced. But I think it would be worth it just for me to never have to type the phrase of nautical origin again. Plus which, I imagine the folks on the Titanic would have been much happier staying home. Ocean voyage, how would that work? Don't be silly. Smithers, fetch us some more nachos. Oh well, I've just been informed of the appalling amount of paperwork it takes to modify a basic law of physics, so I guess I'll stick to answering your question. Our English word square first appeared around 1300 as a noun meaning an implement for determining right angles, more or less what we would call a T-square. We adapted our word square from the old French esquire, which was based on the Latin ex, which means out, plus quadre, make square, from quadrus a square. The use of square to mean a geometric shape made of four right angles developed by the end of the 14th century and a wide variety of other meanings. For example, a number multiplied by itself had developed by the 16th century. Square also came to mean a standard or rule, a guiding principle, in reference to those T-squares used to verify a proper right angle. A square meal is one that is nutritious and complete. Incidentally, our modern English esquire is unrelated to that old French esquire. Our esquire comes from the old French esquiver, meaning shield-bearer, an esquire originally being a knight's assistant. Square as a verb appeared in the late 14th century, meaning simply to make square, but quickly acquired a wide range of figurative meanings. Square in the sense of old-fashioned or clueless appeared as slang in the late 1940s, originally designating some geezer who didn't get jazz. The term is said to have come from the rigid hand motions of an orchestra conductor keeping an uncool traditional four-beat tempo. To square off 
comes from boxing and refers to a fighter adopting a wider stance with arms cocked in preparation for the start of a match. Meanwhile, back at the dreaded nautical origin possibility, as of the early 17th century, to square meant to align the sails at right angles to the keel of a square-rigged sailing ship, the optimal arrangement, with the wind from aft, presumably. Squaring other parts of the ship's rigging meant to put them in correct order and position. That would tend to suggest a nautical source of squared away. But to square had also come to be used to mean to put in proper order, to reconcile, settle, as we speak of squaring accounts by settling debts, balancing the books, etc. This usage clearly referred back to the use of the noun square to mean guiding principle, proper order, and had nothing to do with sailing ships. In any case, the phrase square away, meaning to put in order, to tidy up, first appeared in print in 1909, in a notably non-nautical context. She had a head on her, Barbie had, and when she got squared away, she made them all get down and scratch, and has been in wide use ever since. My sense is that while some people may think of sailing ships when they hear it, the phrase itself is more tied to the accounting use of square to mean in proper order. February the 9th marked the 50th anniversary of the Beatles' legendary first performance on The Ed Sullivan Show. At the time, the band was already wildly successful in Britain. Over the previous three years, they'd rapidly become the country's most popular group and were met by hordes of screaming teenagers at every public appearance. But in the United States, they were known for only a few fast-selling singles released by Capitol Records, along with rumours of the Beatlemania that had struck the UK. From the www.smithsonianmag.com website, an article by Joseph Stromberg. When the Beatles arrived in America, 
reporters ignored the music and obsessed over hair. An estimated 74 million people, a full 38% of the American population, tuned into CBS at 8pm to see the band's American debut. They played She Loves You and I Want to Hold Your Hand, among other songs. Today, music scholars look back at the performance as a watershed moment, a turning point in the history in American music that inextricably influenced a huge proportion of all the pop and rock that's come since. At the time, though, reporters and critics had a much more important concern. The Beatles' unconventional appearances, starting with their shaggy, untrimmed hair. Shortly before they arrived, the New Yorker introduced the band thusly. Their appearance, to judge by photographs of them in the English press, is distinctive. Their get-up, including identical haircuts and dish mop, or as one London newspaper put it, ancient British style, and lapelless suits patterned after a Pierre Cardin design. After they landed, Time observed that they looked like shaggy Peter Pans, with their mushroom haircuts and high white shirt collars, identifying them as four shrewdly goofy-looking lads and running a full-page spread with their mop tops a twirl. Life magazine reassured American mums and dads that British parents do not mind their offspring's mania because Beatle lyrics are clean and happy. As one critic observed, their hair is long and shaggy but well scrubbed. In conveying the Beatlemania phenomenon that had already engulfed Britain, Life informed us that 20,000 Beatle wigs had been sold and quoted the headmaster of an English school that had banned the haircut. This ridiculous style brings out the worst in boys, he said. It makes them look like morons. A few days after their Ed Sullivan show performance, pop psychologist Joyce Brothers wrote a column, Why They Go Wild Over the Beatles, opining that the explanation couldn't possibly be the music alone. The Beatles display a few mannerisms which almost seem a shade on the feminine side, such as the tossing of their long manes of hair, she wrote. These are exactly the mannerisms which very young female fans in the 10 to 14 age group appear to go wildest over. The press spilled a lot of ink trying to explain the Beatles, commenting on how squadrons of police officers and the use of disguises were needed to protect the Beatles from mobs of teenage girls, and how impressed Queen Elizabeth had been with their Royal Command performance concert, but paid curiously little attention to their music itself. Life dismissed it as standard rock and roll with a jackhammer beat. This might have had something to do with a sentiment that was quite common in 1964, that the rock and roll era was finished. By early 1964, in fact, America had mostly left rock and roll behind, Mikhail Gilmore recently wrote in Rolling Stone. Buddy Holly had died, Jerry Lee Lewis and Chuck Berry had been blacklisted, Elvis had joined the army, and pioneering rock DJ Alan Freed had been booted off the air. All these events neutered rock's early spirit and hindered its future. Many thought that rock was essentially dead, and the last thing they expected was that a rock band from Britain 
which had recently been the recipient of American music culture, rather than a contributor to it, would make a mark on US music. The Beatles, many music critics assumed, were a passing fad. Of course, we're now well aware that American rock was anything but dead, and that the Beatles' Ed Sullivan Show performance was just the start of a remarkable run that would see them top the charts for a full third of the time between 1964 and their breakup in 1970. Ultimately, they'd become the best-selling artists of all time in the US and usher in the British Invasion, a pop music phenomenon that saw the Rolling Stones, The Who and other UK bands achieve successes stateside and fundamentally influence the music industry for all the artists that followed. Among many other precedents, they staged the first concerts in large sports stadiums and filmed the predecessors of the first music videos, A Hard Day's Night and Help. After playing three nights on The Ed Sullivan Show and public concerts in New York, Washington DC and Miami, the Beatles flew home to Britain on February 22. The New Yorkers wrap-up, written in the voice of an imaginary teenage boy. Conclusion The Beatles' tour of New York was a success because they are nice guys and the girls think they look cute. Also, they are worth listening to, even if they aren't as good as the Everly Brothers, which they really aren't.
I had to include that song in the podcast. It was one of my favourites from when the Beatles were at their peak. It was when I was at high school and I felt like I was getting nowhere, so Nowhere Man meant something to me. But in hindsight, things turned out quite okay. From the www.curiositas.com website. Cosmovitral, Mexico's amazing stained glass botanical garden. And for this one, to get the most from the article, you'll probably need to visit the show notes at www.origins.info and click on the link to episode 154 of the Origins podcast and then on the link to this article. There are lots of amazing photographs of this beautiful stained glass botanical garden. Stained glass is invariably associated with place of worship. Yet the lucky residents of the Mexican city of Toluca have a wonderful botanical garden replete with a host of incredibly stained glass windows. As well as being a superb display of plants and art together, it is a tour de force in what to do with a building once it outlives its original purpose. Although the building looks as if it could have been built as a railway station, it was in fact a market for over 60 years. As Toluca's first permanent market, it was of massive importance to the city. Yet as the city flourished and grew, the marketplace became too small. By the time of its closure in 1975, it was surrounded by satellite markets of the flea variety, and often the roads around it were so congested they became impassable. The city took the decision to close the market down and to relocate it. Yet what was to be done with the wonderful Art Deco building with its metal and glass roof? Some wanted the building demolished and replaced with a piazza, while others wanted it to be sold into private hands for conversion into office space. One man, however, had different ideas. Step forward, Leopoldo Flores, a local artist, with a plan. Flores envisioned something magnificent for the space. He saw a huge stained glass mural encircling the entire building and running across the ceiling. Below and within its confines, he proposed a botanical garden. The art would show the relationship between man and the universe, the flora, that which places man in his ecological environment. The name for the project, which has also become the name of the building, would be Cosmovitral, an amalgamation of the Spanish words for cosmos and glass. The project would take four years from development to completion. Most would agree it was time well spent, While Flores developed the project, the building was cleaned from top to bottom, removing the best part of a century's grime. Then the walls were reinforced so that they could hold the weight of the stained glass windows. The building had to be significantly strengthened as the new additions would include 75 tonnes of metal support, 
45 tonnes of blown glass and 25 tonnes of lead. Add to that the half a million pieces of glass used in the project and that is some weight to support, to say the very least. However, by 1980 the building was ready to be open to the public, although the ceiling was not completed until 1990. The centrepiece has, since day in one, been Hombre Sol, or Sun Man in English. This amazing panel is representative of humanity and harmony and balance, which makes us unique as a species, and each year Hombre Sol is aligned perfectly with the spring equinox. Such is the popularity of this piece that it has become synonymous with both the city and the country as well. The garden is a host to around about 500 species of plant from Mexico and around the globe, including lilies, roses, rare Mexican orchids, as well as cypress and ferns. There are also trees and shrubs, such as the araucaria from Chile, amaranth of Brazil, and tulip trees from China. One might wonder about the sense of the building, such a vision in an area well known for its earthquakes. Fortunately, this was taken into account when the marketplace was refurbished and strengthened. Not a single piece of Cosmovitral has been destroyed by tremors. Occasionally someone will throw a rock, perhaps under the influence of tequila, but these are quickly replaced. The glass, of course, must be kept clean in order for Cosmovitral to be seen in all its intended glory. The cleaning is performed by a team of two men. Conducted with only water, rags and a fine wire brush, it takes 15 months for each piece of glass to be cleaned and then the team starts once more at the beginning. The same two men have been doing the job for over 25 years. Although the building receives many thousands of visitors each year, over 95% of them are from Mexico and as such Cosmovitral remains little known outside of the country. Yet this is a cultural landmark of global importance and one which in the future will no doubt be cherished as part of humanity's collective heritage. And visit the show notes, have a look at the beautiful stained glass if you've never seen this before. It's really quite magnificent. I have to admit, I melt at the creaminess of full fat yoghurt. It's an indulgence that we're told to resist, and I try to abide. Stealing a bite of my daughter's yo baby doesn't count, does it? The reason we're told to limit dairy fat seems pretty straightforward. The extra calories packed into the fat are bad for our waistlines. That's the assumption. But what if dairy fat isn't the dietary demon we've been led to believe it is? New research suggests we may want to look anew. From the www.npr.org website, an article by Alison Aubrey. The full fat paradox. Whole milk may keep us lean. 
Consider the findings of two recent studies that conclude that the consumption of whole fat dairy is linked to reduced body fat. In one paper published by Swedish researchers in the Scandinavian Journal of Primary Healthcare, middle-aged men who consumed high-fat milk, butter and cream, were significantly less likely to become obese over a period of 12 years compared with men who never or rarely ate high-fat dairy. Yep, that's right, the butter and whole milk eaters did better at keeping the pounds off. I would say it's counterintuitive, says Greg Miller, Executive Vice President of the National Dairy Council. The second study, published in the European Journal of Nutrition, is a meta-analysis of 16 observational studies. There has been a hypothesis that high-fat dairy foods contribute to obesity and heart disease risk. But the reviewers concluded that the evidence does not support this hypothesis. In fact, the reviewers found that in most of the studies, high-fat dairy was associated with a lower risk of obesity. We continue to see more and more data coming out, finding that consumption of whole milk dairy products is associated with reduced body fat, Miller says. It's not clear what might explain this phenomenon. Lots of folks point to the satiety factor. The high levels of fat in whole milk products make us feel fuller, faster. And as a result, the thinking goes, we may end up eating less. Or the explanation could be more complex. There may be bioactive substances in the milk fat that may be altering our metabolism in a way that helps us utilise the fat and burn it for energy rather than storing it in our bodies, Miller says. Whatever the mechanism, this association between higher dairy fat and lower body weight appears to hold up in children too. As reported last year, a study of children published in the Archives of Diseases in Childhood, a sister publication of the British Medical Journal, concluded that low-fat milk was associated with more weight gain over time. It really surprised us, study author Mark DeBeer, a paediatrician at the University of Virginia, told us. So, where does this leave us? The rule followers who have complied with the skim milk is best edict? Well, opinions differ. The recommendations that led to the fat-free dairy boom were, in part, born out of concerns about cholesterol. Whole milk dairy products are relatively high in saturated fat, and eating too much saturated fat can increase the risk of heart disease. So many experts would agree that adults with high cholesterol should continue to limit dairy fat. But it's also becoming clear that there are benefits to full-fat dairy too, at least for some consumers. As we've reported, in addition to the body weight association, organic whole milk contains beneficial omega-3 fatty acids. It's unclear whether more people are opting for whole milk products. Though non-fat and low-fat still dominate dairy sales, the organic sector is experiencing an uptick in whole-fat sales. We definitely in the last few years are seeing a trend towards the whole fat products, George Simeon, CEO of the farmer-owned Organic Valley, told us. His company's sales of whole fat milk are up 10%, he says, and sales of skim milk have trailed off. Also, there's been a boom in butter sales. So stay tuned, though it's a sounds-too-good-to-be-true finding. 
Researchers are continuing to investigate how dairy fat may help people control their weight. Well, I'm so glad I read this article. I don't like skim milk in my coffee or on my breakfast cereal, and I tend to eat whole fat milk in those two products, and I'm going to stick to it. I'm so glad I read it. Quite by chance, when I was researching this podcast, I found a second article about milk that took my interest straight away. From the www.abc.net.au website, Mother's milk made to order for boys, girls. Mothers may say they don't care whether they have a son or a daughter, but their breast milk says otherwise. Mothers are producing different biological recipes for sons and daughters, says Katie Hind, an evolutionary biologist at Harvest University. Studies in humans, monkeys and other mammals have found a variety of differences in both the content and the quantity of milk produced. One common theme. Baby boys often get milk that is richer in fat or protein, and thus energy, while baby girls often get more milk. There are a lot of theories as to why this happens, says Hind, who spoke at the American Association for the Advancement of Science's annual meeting. Rhesus monkeys, for instance, tend to produce more calcium in the milk they feed to daughters who inherit social status from their mothers. It could be adaptive in that it allows mothers to give more milk to daughters, which is going to accelerate their development and allow them to begin reproducing at early ages, says Hind. Males don't need to reach sexual maturity as quickly as females because the only limit on how often they reproduce is how many females they can win over. The females also nurse for longer than male monkeys who spend more time playing off on their own and thus need more energetically dense milk. It's not yet clear why human mothers produce such different milk for their babies, says Hind. There is evidence, however, that the stage is set while the baby is still in utero. Hind co-authored a study published last week in the PLOS One magazine that showed that the sex of the fetus influences the milk production of cows long after they are separated from their calves, typically within hours of the birth. The study of 1.49 million cows found that over the course of two 305-day lactation periods, they produced an average of 445 kilograms more milk when they had female calves than when they had males. They also found no difference in the protein or fat content of the milk produced for heifers than for bulls. Much remains to be understood about how breast milk impacts infant development in humans, says Hind. Knowing more could help improve the baby milk formulas sold to mothers who are unable or unwilling to nurse their infants, she says. While the food aspects of milk to some extent are replicated in formula, the immunofactors and medicine of milk are not, and the hormonal signals are not, she says. 
Getting a better understanding of how milk is personalised for specific infants will also help hospitals find better matches for breast milk donated to help nourish sick and premature infants in neonatal units, she adds. The music for today's podcast came from the musicalley.com. The bandwidth is provided by TalkShoe at www.talkshoe.com. The show notes are kept at the Origins podcast website, www.origins.info. And remember, we have a Facebook page where you can find out what's happening with the podcast, updates and all that sort of stuff. And it's at www.facebook.com forward slash paulrexy or just click on the Facebook link from the show notes. And I'd like to say a big thank you to these listeners, Cameron Huff, Joseph Whaley, Stephen Silverstein and David Fogelman, who have given a donation to the podcast over the last couple of weeks. Many thank you everyone, your help and support is greatly appreciated. And if you'd like to make a donation to the podcast, it's quite easy. Just visit the show notes and there is a PayPal donate button on the very front page of the show notes. All help is greatly appreciated. And to continue the podcast, The Fall of the Galloping Gertie from the damninteresting.com website. And this is an article written by Alan Bellows. In early 1940, engineers and construction workers put the finishing touches on what was to be the longest man-made span in the US, and the third longest in the world, the Tacoma Narrows Bridge. The half-mile-long structure linked Tacoma, Washington to Gig Harbour, and its completion inspired statements such as, a triumph of man's ingenuity, and all other manner of gratified exuberance. But as workers finalised the construction, a curious behaviour became evident. Although the bridge had been designed to stand winds of up to 120 miles per hour, observers noted that even a mere breeze would occasionally cause wave-like ripples to travel up and down its length. Many workers had to chew on lemon wedges to suppress motion sickness. Experiments with a scale model produced no clear solution to the unwanted movement, though the gentle wave motion didn't put the massive bridge in any structural distress. It was clear that motorists would find it disconcerting as cars ahead of them bobbed in and out of view. In spite of the complication, the bridge was opened to the public on July 1, 1940. It did not remain open for long. The Tacoma Narrows Bridge was originally designed by an engineer named Clark Eldridge, with some later revisions implemented by Leon Wasif, one of the designers of the Golden Gate Bridge in San Francisco. The final design departed from the tried-and-true conventions of suspension bridge building in several ways, including the use of I-beams rather than lattice-style deck supports, 
This modification, among others, preserved the structure's strength, but at a decreased cost. After opening, the new bridge shortly came to be known as Galloping Gertie, so named by white-knuckled motorists who braved the writhing bridge on windy days. Even in a light breeze, Gertie's undulations were known to produce waves up to 10 feet tall. Sometimes these occurrences were brief, other times they lasted for hours at a time. Numerous travellers shunned the route altogether to avoid becoming seasick, whereas many thrill-seeking souls paid the 75-cent toll to traverse Gertie during her more spirited episodes. Immediately after the problem was first observed, a number of engineering professors were hired to devise a method to reduce these movements. Tie-down cables and hydraulic buffers were employed with limited success. The matter wasn't considered terribly urgent because the winds were causing longitudinal waves along Gertie's centre span, waves which travelled back and forth along the length, which did not put undue stress on the road bed. The structure was not at risk, nor did it create unsafe driving conditions. It was largely a problem of motorists' comfort. But on the morning of the 7th of November 1940, four months after the bridge was opened, something new happened. While enveloped in a steady 42 mile per hour wind, Gertie abandoned her usual rippling action in favour of a never before seen twisting motion, which increased in intensity at an alarming rate. As crowds gathered on either side to watch the structure thrash about, a college student named Winfield Brown paid the 10 cent pedestrian toll and ventured onto the bridge on foot. After walking to the tower on the other side and back, I decided to cross again. It was swaying quite a bit. About the time I got to the centre, the wind seemed to start blowing harder all of a sudden. I was thrown flat. A car came up about that time. The driver got out, walking and crawling on the other side. We didn't have any time for conversation. Time after time I was thrown completely over the railing. When I tried to get up, I was knocked flat again. Chunks of concrete were breaking up and rolling about. The knees were torn out of my pants and my knees were cut and torn. I didn't know how long it took to get back. It seemed like a lifetime. During the worst parts, the bridge turned so far that I could see the Coast Guard boat in the water beneath. As soon as I got off the bridge, I became sick, so I went to the home of a cousin and lay down for a while. I've been on plenty of roller coasters, but the worst was nothing compared to this. Another man, a newsman, named Leonard Coatsworth, became stranded on the bridge while driving across it. I drove on the bridge and started across. In the car with me was my daughter's cocker spaniel, Tubby. The car was loaded with equipment from my beach home at Arletta. Just as I drove past the towers, the bridge began to sway violently from side to side. Before I realised it, the tilt became so violent that I lost control of the car. I jammed on the brakes and got out, only to be thrown onto my face against the kerb. Around me I could hear concrete cracking. I started back to the car to get the dog, but was thrown before I could reach it. The car itself began to slide from side to side on the roadway. I decided the bridge was breaking up and my only hope was to get back to shore. 
On my hands and knees most of the time, I crawled 500 yards or more to the towers. My breath was coming in gasps. My knees were raw and bleeding. My hands bruised and swollen from gripping the concrete curb. Toward the last, I risked rising to my feet and running a few yards at a time, safely back to the toll plaza. I saw the bridge in its final collapse and saw my car plunge into the narrows. Unable to withstand the increasingly brutal torsional twisting, a number of galloping Gertie's suspender cables snapped, shifting the weight off the deck onto the remaining cables. Under the increased load and enormous strain, the cables broke one by one until there were too few to support the massive roadbed. After weathering over an hour of the punishment, a huge portion of Gertie's steel and concrete centre deck broke off and fell 195 feet, plunging into the Tacoma Narrows with a terrific crash. A column of dust rose into the air and sparks crackled from broken power lines. Clark Eldridge, the bridge's original designer, was present to witness the destruction. I was in my office about a mile away when word came that the bridge was in trouble. At about 10 o'clock, Mr Walter Miles called from his office to come and look at the bridge that it was about to go. The centre span was swaying wildly, it being possible first to see the entire bottom side as it swung into a semi-vertical position and then the entire roadway. I observed that all traffic had been stopped and that several people were coming off the bridge from the easterly side span. I walked to tower number five and out onto the main span to about the quarter point, observing conditions. The main span was rolling wildly. The deck was tipping from the horizontal to an angle approaching 45 degrees. The entire span appeared to be twisting about a neutral point at the centre of the span in somewhat the manner of a corkscrew. At tower number five, I met Professor Farquharson, who had set his camera and was taking pictures. We remained there a few minutes, then decided to return to the east anchorage, warning people who were approaching to get off of the span. At that time, it appeared that should the wind die down, the span would perhaps come to rest, and I resolved that we would immediately proceed to install a system of cables from the piers to the roadway, levelling the main span to prevent any recurrence. I was then informed that a panel of laterals in the centre of the span had dropped out and a section of concrete slab had fallen. I immediately went to the south of the view plaza. The bridge was still rolling badly. I returned to the toll plaza and from there observed the first section of steel fall out of the centre. From then on, successive sections towards each tower rapidly fell out. Though no human life was lost when Gertie fell, Tubby the Cocker Spaniel did not survive. Much of the catastrophic collapse was caught on motion picture film thanks to Barney Elliott, the owner of a local camera shop. Examination of the film, the bridge's remains and tests with scale models determined that resonance was responsible for Gertie's demise. Due to the design decision to replace the lattice support with I-beams, the wind was unable to pass under the structure as readily as it passed over it, causing a difference in pressure, much like an airplane wing. Once there was sufficient sway to tilt the deck slightly, 
Aerodynamics caused the roadbed to twist to the point that it sprang back, causing a repeating cycle of back and forth twisting. During this process, the steadily blowing wind added more and more energy to the vibrations. The public was shocked that the beautiful state-of-the-art bridge, designed by one of the most respected bridge engineers in the world, could fail so spectacularly. The $6 million structure had been approved by federal and state experts, and suspension bridges were not a new technology. Ultimately, the bridge was not built from substandard materials, nor was it under-engineered. Its designers merely overlooked the physical phenomenon of resonance. Though the suspension bridge had been designed to sway and to withstand some longitudinal waves, it had not been built to withstand the torsional punishment. Today, Galloping Gertie's spectacular self-destruction stands as a cautionary tale, retold to countless students of civil and structural engineering. The state of Washington collected on Gertie's insurance, except for a small portion which had been unpaid due to fraud, and went on to build a replacement bridge ten years later. The harsh lesson of Galloping Gertie was not lost on the new designers, and the new span was built with resonance in mind. Its new design introduced openings for air to pass through, and scale models were thoroughly tested in a wind tunnel. Sturdy Gertie has stood since 1950 and will soon be joined by a sister bridge to accommodate increased traffic. Much of the original Gertie's wreckage still resides on the floor of the Tacoma Narrows today, forming one of the world's largest artificial reefs. Though some of the steel was pilfered and reused for the war effort in the years following the collapse, what's left of her remains are now protected as an historical site. And that article was written by Alan Bellows in January 2007. Well, everyone, that concludes episode 154 of the Origins podcast. Hope you enjoyed today's show from my new room in my new house. And it's so quiet I can even record with the windows open, if it's not too hot. So until next time, everyone, this is Paul saying bye for now and keep well, everyone.